We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. 1920s, the University of Toronto began a process called the Ritual of the Giving of the Ring. And it was a process that, that came about, there was a, a massive bridge failure that took place in 1911 that killed 75 construction workers as the bridge collapsed. And a little later, it was discovered that this collapse had happened because of the judgment of the engineers. As they began reconstructing in 1916, a similar incident happened and 10 more people were killed for a total of 85. So the University of Toronto became what's, I guess it's not too big of a secret because we know about it, but began a ritual of the giving of, a, of an iron ring to every engineering graduate. And this is extended to other universities throughout Canada. And as an engineering graduate, you would put this ring on your dominant hand on the pinky finger. As you're working on plans, that ring is, is moving across the piece of paper as a reminder of your ultimate responsibility. When I went to engineering school, uh, you graduate with a four-year degree and then you have to work for about five years as an, in an apprenticeship and then you take your board exams and become an engineer. And one of the big ideas that you are committed to in engineering is that your priority is the safety of the public. So for an engineer, a lot of times we would have um, conflict with developers because developers are, are typically interested in the speed of the project and they're typically uh, concerned with the expense of the project because their chief end is, is profit and, and providing a service or, a, or construction to a company. So oftentimes as an engineer, you would butt head, I would butt heads with a developer because they were trying to do something and, and our chief goal has to be the public safety. Sometimes we would butt heads with architects because architects wanted to put up buildings that were creative and efficient to move people around. If it's a big building, how do we move people around the best way possible and make it visually interesting? But the engineer's primary responsibility is the public safety. And so this ring was such a powerful reminder to engineers in Canada that your job is safety. There's this parallel uh, that's similar in the role of a preacher. The text we're going to look at tonight is a text that we use a lot of times to work with pastors overseas. Uh, in a world of subjectivity, in a world of feelings, in a world of marketing, in a world of emotion, there's a real temptation for a preacher to be as flashy as he can or to be as interesting as he can or to... To, to entertain the best way possible. But that's not really the role of a preacher. That, that our instruction from the pulpit has to be done the right way. And so in the text we're going to look at tonight, we, we've got to remind ourselves that the role of the preacher in a church, you know, a, a church we primarily gather together for four big reasons. We come together for fellowship with one another. We come together to worship together. We come together for instruction that we can all gather around God's word and to be instructed. And then we gather together that we might go out and reach the world. 
And so this text tonight really gives us a model for that instruction, both the instruction that's supposed to come from the preacher as well as the response that's supposed to come from the pews. You guys remember, Corey helped us last week in that transition that the wall is now complete. And we move from the rebuild to the restore or the renewal of the people. And as chapter 7 ends, it ends with the phrase that everyone was back at their town. And as we remember that, we, we come to the... So, so we've got the infrastructure in place in Israel, right? We've got the wall built around the city. We've got the temple reconstructed. The infrastructure's in place. But now we've got to actually deal with the hearts of the people. And we've seen revivals a couple of times in Ezra, but now we're going to address it even further as we set to establish this post-exilic community. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, all the people gathered as one man to the square before the water gate. So chapter 7 ends with them scattered about, but now it says all the people have come together, that, that they're not scattered throughout the city. They're together as one man. Why are they coming together? They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. You see, the key to this entire restoration project is going to be the book. It's going to be the Word of God. It's not a social program. It's not a, you know, a, a, a political program. It's, it's coming together around the law of Moses, around the book, around God's Word. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, men women, all could understand, and they heard on the first day of the seventh month. The first day of the seven months, the beginning of the new year, and they've come together, and Ezra's going to read them the Bible. He's going he's to teach. This is central to their lives. This is central to our lives. Remember back in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, Ezra set his heart to study the law, to practice it, and to teach it, because it's the most important thing. And so here the people have come together, and they say, teach us, help us understand. They long for the word. They recognize its authority. These people understand that the most important thing is God's word. It's crazy, right? It's crazy that we could be distracted from that idea, that the God of the universe who created everything, who orders all things, who's sovereign over all things, has given us direct revelation that we can have direct access to, and we toss it on the couch. But these people have come together and said, this is our authority. Not philosophy. They didn't come together to recite poetry. They come together for the Word of God. And I think there's a question here in even their pursuit of this that we have to ask ourselves is, do you, do I prioritize the Word of God? Do I let it sit as an authority over my life? Do I have the same hunger that these guys have? And if not, why? Is it priority? Is it distraction? Is it sin? What is it that keeps you from recognizing 
the need and hungering for God's word. Verse 2, the audience is everyone. This is men, women, basically everyone who's old enough to understand comes together. That the, that the reading of the Bible is not exclusive to one particular group. It wasn't just a gathering of the priests. It's a gathering of everyone who can understand. Because this is God's direct revelation to all of us. Verse 3. He read it from the, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. From morning until midday. So we're talking four to six hours here. We struggle to sit for 40 minutes and listen to a sermon and these guys are sitting there for, for four to six hours because they're so hungry they're hearing the word. Uh, you know, as he's reading the word, they're gathering together, they're repeating it. And, and one of the things I think we have to understand is many of these people wouldn't have been able to read, and if they had, there weren't many manuscripts sitting around. So this isn't necessarily like our situation today where all of you have multiple Bibles in your house that you have access to every morning. This is a gathering together of people who don't have access normally to the Word, uh, that, that this is their only uh, chance to read. So a lot of this is why we don't have regular Bible readings, but I just got back a few months ago from Rwanda, and there's a ministry we work alongside to train pastors with in Rwanda uh, called ABC Ministries. It's all the Bible and community, and, and there was a seminary professor who just had the idea that the people in the rural communities often can't read and they, very few of them have the Word of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to establish Bible communities and just have host families in as many regions as possible, and, and we're just going to set one night a week for everybody to come together, and all they do is read the Word. And these things are fabulously attended because people are hungry. And it reminds me of this story when I hear them talk about it. But the idea of coming together and reading the Word that we often take for granted the access that we have. Verses 4 and 5, it says, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform he had made for that purpose. And then we really just get details through 4 and 5 about how Ezra reads it. This is a scroll that was held out in front of him. He's in a high place. There are men that are ministering alongside him, and the word is going out. But then look at verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their head and worshiped the Lord's with their faces on the ground. That Ezra reads the law and the people worship. That there's an immediate feedback, an immediate response to the things that they're hearing. Ezra reads it they respond. Ezra reads it, they respond. Amen. It is so. It is so. In verse 7, and Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shevani, and, and the list of men who were Levites 
Help the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. The priests are helping them understand that they're explaining what Ezra is saying. We're not talking about just a a blind reading here. The people are helping them understand. In verse 8, we get a further detail. It says, he read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood we're reading. And so this verse is really the key of, of what we're talking about when we're talking about preaching. In this verse, we see from verse, six, verse 7, the priests help. Well, verse 8 tells us how they do it. The first thing is that they, they're translating. Remember, most of these people have been living for 70 years in Babylon. For most of them, Hebrew would have been a second language and rusty at best. They wouldn't have understood that, that they, would have, they would have understood Aramaic, but their Hebrew would have been rusty. So the first thing the Levites are doing is explaining to them what Ezra is actually saying and helping them understand. So he translates what's there so that they can understand. I think about that from a, just from a philosophical understanding that God's word needs to be in a language that we understand. That, that we have in the Old Testament the, the image of the priest as a mediator, right? The priest is a, a representative of God to man and a representative of man to God. But as we sit here today, Jesus Christ has been our mediator so that we have direct, direct access to the Father. But a lot of times we can create this sort of hierarchical uh, idea that, that only certain people have access to the Word of God. But I think what we see here is a desire to get it in their own language so that they can understand. So the first step of this process of understanding God's Word is to understand God's Word. But he goes on, it says, they read from the book clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood. They made it clear is the idea. The Hebrew word here is that they divided it into parts. You would just, they explained it. They simplified it. They helped people understand. They gave them the details. You know, I think sometimes when we read this passage, we can just get this idea of of Ezra just standing up, reading a dry text for four to six hours. But what you've got is Ezra, I'm sorry, not reading a dry text, reading the text dryly. How's that? Reading the text dryly for four to six hours. But what you've got is You've got Ezra reading the text, but then you've got these Levites spread out that are breaking it into parts and helping them understand. What does that sound like? It sounds like what a preacher ought to be doing today. It's breaking it into parts so that we can understand it so as to not be overwhelmed by the big flow. They interpreted the meaning that that it wasn't just explaining it in a sense, it was also interpreting it so they understood what was important about the text. And so what the Levites did, I believe, I think it's safe to infer that they helped these people cross cultural and language gaps so that they could understand the sense of what was being read to them because what they're going to call on to do next is to apply it. See, in a lot of our churches today, what we want to do 
is, is have pastors who stand in the pulpits and simply tell us how to live or tell us what to do because it's easier to follow a set of rules. But if we're going to do it right, what we need to do is to help people understand the word of God so that they can apply it in their lives, to help cross the, the culture gap, to help cross the language gap when it's unclear. So, so they made it clear. The other thing they did is they gave it sense. They gave it meaning. They helped them understand the details, that they weren't just explaining the what of the passage, but they were explaining the why of the passage. A lot of times we can do that, right? If, if we're just approaching a text intellectually, I can do this when I study. You can do this when you study. Just to approach it intellectually so that you know what it says, you really haven't done the work. The question is, why is this text here? What difference does it make in my life? And I think this is the other thing that the Levites were helping uh, those that had gathered to see is this isn't just a history book. It's God communicating to us so that we might live it out. And so when we, and then he also tells us the goal, finally there in verse 8, so that they understood. That my goal is for you to understand. That when you teach someone, your goal is that they understand. Not just that they have facts, but that there's an understanding of why this text is important. So we see in this section, we see Ezra's, Ezra's method, that he, that, he, that he and the Levites break the text into parts to help the listeners understand the meaning so that they can apply it. That there's an explanation going on. We see his goal is the understanding of his audience. Ezra wants his audience to understand what the law says, what God's word says. And finally, the result is going to be the application of the text. The real question about preaching is what the people do when they walk out the door. Not that they simply have a favorable response or were entertained, but are they able to understand it so that they're able to apply the text? And so that's really the result of Ezra's teaching. And this is the goal of preaching. This is the stick by which a sermon should be measured. That, that Deuteronomy 4.10, Paul tells Moses to gather the people together that I may let them hear my words. We see this model throughout Scripture. It's not just here. Acts 17.2, we get the story. Paul went into the synagogue in Thessalonica for three straight weeks to explain the Scriptures. That Colossians 1.25, Paul was made a minister of the gospel to make God's Word fully known. And then in 2 Corinthians 4.2, Paul says, we have renounced graceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of truth, or the NASB says, see, setting forth the truth plainly. You know, a lot of times we can talk about preaching styles. You know, are you a topical guy? Are you a, 
an emotional guy? Do you tell lots of stories? Those are all peripheral things. When we look at God's word and what preaching is supposed to be, there's one model that's repeated throughout, and there aren't other models. That, 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 that expository preaching, the preaching from the word and explaining the text for application, isn't a model for preaching. It's the model that we see throughout Scripture. Because as I stand in this pulpit, the only authority I have is my ability to say, thus saith the Lord. It's my ability to say, this is what the text means. The farther I get away from that, the less authority I have. Anything, you know, if, if, with anything apart from God's word, you're getting my opinion, and why does my opinion matter more than any of your opinions? And there may be some applied wisdom that all of us share, and so sometimes wisdom may come from the pulpit. But as far as what it means to preach God's word, it's the ability to stand and to explain the text. That the flow of my sermon has to match the flow of the text. Otherwise, I'm just doing what I want. And see, this is a global problem. This is my story. That I grew up in churches where the word of God was simply an add-on or a springboard. There was a verse that was read at the beginning of the service, but basically the preacher would just tell you what he thought, or he would simply just share the gospel every week. But this is the story of millions of churches around the world as well. That we have to return to a view of preaching that simply explains the text. We live in a culture that that's not what's sought, that my job is not to entertain you. My job is not to give you advice. It's not to tell you how to win friends and influence people. It's not how to succeed. It's not to give you ideas and, and just hit whatever topic is, is stressing you out. It's not to engage you emotionally. It didn't to pass on knowledge just so you've got more intellectual data in your head. That if I'm only doing any of these things, that I'm not really preaching the word. These aren't the methods that we see in the Bible. That, that, that my job is to help you understand the difference it makes in your life to help you understand what's there. If I stop short of that, then it's just information. If I try to go here without here, then it's just emotionalism. And none of us want that. So what we see in the Bibles is teachers who teach the text with sermons that follow the flow of the text in a way that listeners understand and apply to their lives, to the glory of God. That's preaching. And I think that's modeled right here in the text as these Levites explained what Ezra was reading. And so when that is done, how do we, how do we respond? Let's keep looking. Verse 9. 
And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why would they weep when they heard the words of the law? I think it's because they realized how short they had fallen in keeping the law. I mean, they had come back from the Exodus. They had built the temple. They had rebuilt the wall. But even in those acts of faithfulness, I think they hear the, the law and they start to realize, woe is me. We've fallen short. But how did Nehemiah and Ezra respond? They say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why? I think, first of all, what we see here is that they've already repented. Satan wants us to wallow in our sin. I've heard it said Satan does a great job of diminishing our sin on the front side and magnifying our sin on the back side. That before we sin, he convinces it's just no big deal. And after we sin, he's convinced us it's over. There's nothing you can do. But the reality is, I think this verse is a testament, and they're meant to understand the nature of the grace of God. That you've repented. You're forgiven. Don't wallow in that. I think the second thing is, this is the first day of the Feast of Trumpets. Basically, as I said in the beginning, it's their New Year's Day. This is a time of reflecting uh, leading to the Day of Atonement. So, so the first day of the month kicks off the Festival of the Trumpets. The tenth day of the month is the Day of Atonement. And then we'll start the Festival of the Booths, Festival of Booths a little later. And so they've come together to be, begin preparing, and really this festival is a period of reflection before we get to the Day of Atonement, a period of reflection of all that God has done, a period of reflection of their shortcomings, a celebration for the, for the, the harvest that's come in in the fall harvest. And so he's saying this is the day that the Lord has made, do not mourn or weep, because what we're supposed to understand in this period is the grace of God. That sure, you fell short, but the grace of God overcomes that. The deep joy that we should be experiencing in relationship with God. Do you do that with the gospel? Do you ever sit back with just a deep joy that, Lord, you are not giving me what I deserve. And for that, because we have a relationship, I'm joyful. I'm joyful because of Christ, that he restored our relationship. For these people, it was joyful in their relationship with God that they had through faith as a result of repenting for their sin. Verse 10 he sat and he said, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For the day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The deep joy 
of the Lord. Certainly there was celebrations as the wealthy people in the community gave to the poor people in the community so that everybody was able to feast. Certainly there was a common grace that everyone experienced the way we experience when we're in true fellowship with one another. But deeper than that is the joy that they felt because of of the Lord. So the Levites calmed all the people, seeing, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What a great picture we have. Ezra reads the word, the word's explained, the people respond with amen, and then they respond with an understanding of their standing before God. And just as they begin to mourn, the leaders stand up and say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Walk in the grace of the Lord. Rejoice in Him. Fellowship together. Share your meals. Enjoy one another's company, but ultimately recognize that we're all here because of the work God has done. What an unbelievable picture of true community that's centered on a relationship with God. That's the centerpiece of what they're drawn together for. It's the Word of God. It's the relationship with God. The text goes on. The next day, they come back together. The heads of the father's houses and all the people with the priests and the Levites came together with Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So this is a smaller group in verse 13. It says, they found written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the festival of the seventh month and that they should Proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out of the hills and bring branches of olives, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. See, the festival of booths was a look back to the wanderings of the children of Israel. How God took care of them for 40 years. It was meant to be a time of of reflection that they would sit back and be be thankful that God had been gracious to take care of their forefathers, that they will actually go out and live in tents to remind themselves. The tents weren't exactly the same, but to remind themselves of what it was like for the children of Israel. It reminded them of their indebtedness to God, his care for them and their families during the wanderings during, in the wilderness. And then it was also a chance to express gratitude to God for his provision for the harvest. And all the assembly of those who returned from captivity made booths, They lived in booths for the days, for from the days of Jeshua, son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had not done so, and there was great rejoicing. Think about it. They're they're like activating their community memory here to say, think of all that God has done for us. And, And as we're coming to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, I can't help but think that they've added a whole new layer to that, right? So if, so if you're a Jew 
You've returned from the land. You're thinking, we get to celebrate this festival of booze to remember God's faithfulness in bringing our people who were enslaved for 400 years out of Egypt. And because of their disobedience, they have to wander for 40 years. But even in their wandering, God didn't just obliterate them. He actually cared for them during those 40 years. Just like their recent ancestors had been wicked, had experienced judgment from God by being carried out first by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians, to be in 70 years of, 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 of exile. And now God's gathered them back together. So I would imagine there's a sweetness in this festival of booths as they actually sat and meditated and thought about all that God had done. The graciousness of God to care for them. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. I think as we approach God's word, it ought to look something like this to us. Our times are very different. You guys have Bibles on your shelves. But the thought of, of allowing the Bible to filter through our lives because we recognize God's faithfulness. The idea that we come together weekly to hear from God's word. You know, I grew up, I've talked some about the churches I grew up in, but when I was really young, we went to a church that was, a, was more formal than the Baptist church I went through most of my childhood. And I remember we did responsive readings in church. And like I think back now about those responsive readings, and it's a pretty rich tradition that, that the person in the front, whether it's the pastor or the worship leader, is, is reading a section of Scripture and the people respond back with other parts of Scripture. And I think about it in its purest form, and it feels like such a powerful thing to do. But for me as a kid, and I think every single person in that church, it was just a ritual. I don't remember any of the words that were read. I don't remember any of them being very powerful. I just remember it, it was cool because I was kind of new to reading, and we, uh, we would just read those words. And I think we can all get that way. We can sort of get into a habit, into a ritualistic pattern. That we come to church, we hear the word, we close our Bible, we go back to work. And I'm not talking about, you know, coming to church on Sunday and living like hell the rest of the week. I'm just saying we can almost get apathetic even to the preaching of the word to where we just come and hear the word and and we think, oh, that's a really nice sermon, or he told some great stories, or a couple of great illustrations there, or wow, I didn't know that about this text. But when I read Nehemiah 8, what I see is the people who hear the word, they repent where it's appropriate, but then they apply it to their lives right away. And they first celebrate this festival of trumpets when they come together and, and are excited, and then they celebrate this festival of booths because, you know, it says since the time of Joshua, they hadn't done it. 
they come together and say, we're going to apply this text together in a community. I think that's, that's the simple way it ought to be for us. That I hope you guys aren't here just to get some more knowledge or to understand a book better. The question is, are we applying what we know in our hearts? So, so A, am I in a church or am I helping other churches so that the preaching is actually the word? And then second, what am I doing with the word? Am I doing like the Israelites and saying, I've got to let this filter through my life and actually apply it in the context of the community I'm living in? Are we doing that? How are we doing? How are we doing as a church? Do we apply what we lead or do we just stop with the intellectual side where I say, I got it? Because our spiritual growth is not measured by our knowledge of the Bible. It's by its application because its application is where God is glorified. So this Bible reading is not a ritual. We don't read the Bible for good luck. We don't collect sermons to impress our friends. We have to apply the word in our circumstances. You know, God has given us his word. He's revealed this truth to us. And in a world that's shifting all around us, this is a bedrock anchor point so that no matter what happens in my life, this is solid truth. This is a, a compass. It's a, it's a plumb line. It's an anchor point so that all these things around us, though they may shift all the time, this is the point I can return to. And so as a teacher, it's, our, it's my obligation. When you teach, it's your obligation to stick to this. And as a member of the community, I have to, to not simply let this go in one ear and out the other or even just be information, but I have to work to apply it. And so that's my prayer for us is that we would take this seriously. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you so much that you have engaged us, that you have pursued us in a relationship, that you could have done away with man when Eve and Adam sinned, but you didn't, that you longed to live in relationship with us and that you maintain your justice while providing a sacrifice that Jesus paid for our sin. And because of his sacrifice, if we place our faith in him, we have a relationship with you. And Lord, the way we know that is because we have your word. And that's really the beginning of our relationship. So Lord, I praise you and I thank you that you didn't create us and sit back and spin the top and get out of the way, but that you engage us and interact with us, that you love us. So, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be turned towards you and that we would live in such a way as to apply your word that you might have the glory. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.